Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. Good morning, everybody. Happy Saturday. I am Nick Slavic. I am the proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. I am also the host of this show, Ask a Painter Live. This is a weekly live show. I've been doing this for six and a half years, give or take. This is show number 347. So that's 347 uh, weeks of uninterrupted uh, broadcast. Here we go. So uh, this show is basically a treatise on what it's like to be a master craftsperson, a trades business entrepreneur, all that other good stuff. Um, at the start of every year, we go through a series called Mastering the Basics, where I basically go through all the steps to professionalization, a sheet that I hand out readily uh, that have taken me from zero to about 30 or 40 people, depending on uh, uh, you know time of the year. Um, we're, we're marching through every little step. I'm giving you an example, and then I share some free resources. Today, this is a big show, everybody. This is estimating. This is the thing that people have the most questions about. Um, I have a whole bunch of unsatisfying, super easy solutions to all of it, but it entails you tracking data consistently and uh, being a good business owner. So, uh, all right, everybody, we're going to uh, do a little bit of housekeeping here first, um, and then we're going to jump in. Remember, this show is live. It is a live Q&A show. So anything you guys want to know, any questions you have, put it in here and I will get to it. I'm going to get through a bunch of data, a bunch of stuff today. Uh, I took a bunch of information from one of my master's classes, my estimating master's class, and we're going to put it in here right now. And I'll remind you later too, uh, morning, everybody watching. Um, hit share, everybody. Follow the Ask a Painter Live Facebook page. Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on TikTok, and you'll get updates whenever I go live. Just hit share. It's literally the kindest thing you can do for this show is to share it out there so that uh, we attract other like-minded individuals onto this show. A couple bits of housekeeping real quick here. Um, the uh, PCA, Painting Contractors Association Expo, the big exposition is coming up uh, later in February in New Mexico. Do not miss it, folks. This is a big one. There's somewhere between four and 700 uh, vendors, master crafts people, trades business entrepreneurs, all the thought leaders from the country are there. A lot of people you guys know from social media are going to be there, and it's going to be an awesome time. It's multiple days of education, knowledge sharing, uh, crazy social get-togethers at night. I'm bringing my entire team. It's going to be an absolute blast, and I hope to see uh, most of you guys there too. So uh, let's see what else we have. Oh, the Ask a Painter live retreat. The retreat with Nick Slavic is coming up too in a couple of weeks. We have a full slate here. As soon as this one is done, we'll start taking applications for the summer one. Uh, there's probably about 30 or 40 people who have already kind of uh, shown interest and done some application process. Uh, but otherwise, as soon as the winter one is done, we will go for the summer one here. Um, what else do we have going on here? Oh, yes. One of the most important resources I can send your way is the PCA Painting Contractors Association Business Accelerator. After this show is done, there will be links to all this stuff. Uh, there will be links to the retreat, there'll be links to the expo and the business accelerator. The business accelerator is a eight to 10 week course. You get in a cohort of 10 to 12 people. You go through a learning management system with that group of people on how to professionalize your business. Estimating is one of those things that you do. So, um, there's, there'll be a link in there for that. 
It is a Mayan Jason Paris's baby that we introduced to the PCA. The PCA has taken it under their umbrella. We have world-class training for painters. We have world-class training for business owners. We're routing out those offerings and we're getting it out to the people today. Uh, people on TikTok, people on Instagram. You're going to miss a pretty data-heavy show today. Uh, I'm going to have a screen share here and you'll be able to see it in real time on Facebook. At the end of this, I'll give you my email address and you can get four amazing resources, including a couple more from the PCA. Otherwise, we're going to jump into this, folks. You guys are here for estimating and we're going to do some estimating stuff. So let me clear off my screen real quick here. All right. And let's get to it. And uh, uh, later on in the show, I'm going to show you in real time through job costing how we can determine a proper price for something. So uh, this is going to be a deep dive into the sort of like uh, teach a person to fish thing instead of teach them how to fish. This is not what to charge for X. This is more of like, how do you come up with price, give or take? So good morning, everybody. Drop your um, drop your uh, comments, questions, anything else in the comments. We will get to them uh, as soon as I get through some stuff here. Otherwise, uh, let's hop on this. All right. So this is show number 347, Mastering the Basics, Estimating. Uh, we are going to deep dive in this uh, for the first three months of the year. Every week, I'm going to be bringing you some point of basic business professionalization, deep dive, and free resources. All right. All right, what this is not, what do you charge for X, right? I'm not just going to hand over a price sheet and tell you what to charge because price is, now that's a very simple thing. And privately, I can help people out with that sort of thing. But the price that I charge for things will likely not be helpful. And my pricing theory and how we, uh, how we go about uh, offering value to the client may not be specifically transferable to your business. But basically, I am not one of those guys that says, well, I couldn't possibly tell you based on location and all this other stuff. I actually trade track market rate data for painting jobs across the United States when I travel. And I'm going to share those with you later today. So what this is, is, is a treatise on how to come up with price. Now, be honest, everybody. Be very honest. I've heard people say this. I've said this myself, right? Before I had data. I have heard so many people say this. I'm the most expensive. I'm the best painter in my area. And I'm booked out 18 months. Those things may not be true. You have to be open to the idea that that may not be true. The proof for that is just prove it. Can you prove with data that you are the most expensive, that you are the best? You can prove that you're booked out that far, but there's an economic reality that I want to be very honest here. It's going to sound like a lot of pushback. It is not pushback. I am one of you. I am supportive. I want us to get through this. I have said this. I have been here. I have done all these things. I used to brag about being the most expensive, the best and booked out two years in advance. Number one, I wasn't most expensive. Number two, I'm definitely not the best. Number three, booking out one to two years is not a good thing. By the laws of economics, you have underpriced your work. If you give something away for free or underprice it vastly, lots of people will take lots of it, right? You don't know if you're the most expensive, you're the best, or if your booking out so far is good unless you job cost. I have sat around this table in the war room long ago in the time of COVID. I brought in master craftspeople from all over the country and we did a job costing experiment where they brought in their jobs. We ran them through my job costing template and all of us around the table were convinced we're the most expensive, we're the best, and we're super proud of being booked out far. Turns out we were making about $20 an hour because we were giving away work. We we're working 100 hours a week and we weren't job costing. We didn't actually put a price on our labor. So I will challenge all of you, if you have ever said one of these three things, prove it with data. 
And if you can't prove it with data or don't know how to, I can help you with it. This is basically <coughs> how I triangulate on price, on, on the rough thing. Um, depending on the price, depending on the time of year, this is how I think about price. Most of our industry, if we're being honest, operates on gut or experience. I'm just going to charge this for this. I've done it in the past. I'm not bankrupt, so we're going to charge that. There's production rates where you actually track the measurement of something, uh, the time it takes to do it, the amount of paint and the, and the price you put on that. So that can actually be a replicable thing, replicable thing. And then uh, the thing that I'm most interested in is market rate data, actual market rates. What does the market bear for that certain thing? That is the toughest one to come by, but it is the most useful because it's agnostic of your feelings for the most part. It's agnostic of varied production rates. And I'm going to get into all this stuff too. So let's get in here, everybody. All right. The bedroom pricing experiment. When we talk about market rate, uh, market rate is what's the most that this that the market will pay for a certain job. And that's very hard to come by. In other things like real estate or gasoline, it's very easy. There's only a couple cents uh, variation with everything. <clears throat> and there's ways to track it. Uh, imagine if there was a Zillow for painting jobs. With Zillow, you can hover over a house and it can tell you about an estimate for that house. Imagine if there was a Zillow for painting projects where you hover over a deck and it says, uh, on average for a one coat process, $1,200 to $1,600. That doesn't exist, so we have to make it our own. So I'm showing you this. I travel around the country doing master's classes and I actually have people anonymously estimate the same bedroom wall painting project. I anonymize the data aggregate it into a spreadsheet, throw out the highs and lows, the outliers, and then come up with a market rate. And I'm going to share that with you guys later on. We've actually tracked market rates for major metro areas across the United States for almost three years now. And uh, this dispels the myth of, you know, when somebody gets on my, uh, my favorite Facebook group ever, Tanner Mullins group, painting contractors, and somebody says, what do you charge for this? A bunch of painters get on there and say, you're a hack if you don't know this. We couldn't possibly tell you. That is all false. That is all 100% false. Geographical areas do not make that much different in price. Painters don't make that much different in price. The reason people push back and they say, you're a hack if you don't know, most of the time, painters, I love you. I'm one of you. Most of the time, you don't know what price it is. So you can't give them that information. All right. I dare people. I, I would challenge this entire industry. When somebody puts a pricing question up on one of the Facebook groups, say, you post your estimate for it and we'll critique it. We'll find the good, the bad, and we'll give you, um, we'll give you a, a review on it. Also, every painter, post your estimate for that same project if it's given enough um, uh, information. That would be my challenge to you. I got on there a couple of times and did that. And I actually went live one time and just said, give me all your jobs. I'll price them for you. Because there is this myth about this, ooh, I have a magic pricing strategy. I got this secret algorithm that comes up with it. It is not a secret. It's, it's just basic data tracking but most people don't do it. All right. I have done two live estimates before. If you go to Ask a Painter Live number eight and Ask a Painter Live number 177, it's covered up by my face here. Um, Ask a Painter Live number 177. I actually have done two live estimates for two actual clients in the field before, and I live broadcasted them. Um, the really cool thing is on number eight, which you see there, um, I did it by paper, a carbon copy way back. I mean, this is Ask a Painter number eight. This is six years ago. Then I did Ask a Painter number 177 where I went digital. I had my tablet. I had a printer in my van and everything else. So you're going to see a varied array, two different kinds of estimates. You can actually see me do an estimate in real time twice. And I would urge you guys to watch that stuff for a good data point. This data point does not exist in the rest of the industry. It's a pretty cool data point to see somebody else do an estimate. All right.
before we get into this, and, and when I start a master's class, I go through some assumptions and some variables to make sure we're all on the same page. Number one, do not mess with price unless you have a proven product. A proven product is I use this product on this substrate and I apply it this way and I can guarantee it's going to have an outcome at the end. This is bore out by SOPs, which we did in the first show of the year, uh, Standard Operating Procedures. Remember, price is only one variable. You have to be honest about your production. Most people think if they didn't make money on a job, the price was wrong. I would look inward first and say, are you a good painter? Did you work as hard as you could? Did everything go right and you still didn't make money? If that is not true, you need to improve your painting processes or your, your way about going the, uh, the job, the standard operating procedure. Uh, you must be consistent in order to mess with pricing. You must be consistent in order to mess with pricing. If you're all over the place, if you're trying new people, new products, new systems every time, and you're and you're charging the same price and you're getting varied um, results, uh, you know, profitability, then you need to standardize the system first. Price is the thing that people go to first. But honestly, you might be charging the right price. You might just have a hiccup in your painting process. So you got to be open to that. Um, you have to be open to the idea that you might not be a good estimator or salesperson. You might not be good at actually standing in somebody's house selling a job. So again, remember, we always think about price, estimating as price. Price is only one variable of all this thing. When in doubt, here's my uh, advice to you. And this is what I did early on. You need data for your business. If you do not get a paint job, you will not have data. So when in doubt, get the job, do job costing, get a data point, and then make, uh, make a, a change in the price or the process if you need to. Um, here's the thing. We just need to say this, right? Most people estimate by feelings and by their gut. We need to be honest with that. That's why there is mass chaos in these Facebook groups when somebody posts something about pricing. Most people feel that because they've been around five to 20 years and they estimate based on gut that they have some secret algorithm. The problem is they don't. <laughs> and uh, it's likely based on the statistics of our industry that they're not making any money on that too. So um, you must add data to your feelings. This is bore out by job costing and some basic tracking. Uh, and the one thing that's covered up by my face again is almost all pricing problems can be resolved by job costing. That's the honest truth. We have a deep dive into um, job costing coming up in a couple of weeks here. I would urge you guys to do that. But honestly, if you have questions about what to charge, how to schedule, how to find people, uh, any of that sort of thing, I'm telling you, job costing will solve almost every bit of that or give you the baseline data to make good database decisions. So unsatisfying answer in a series of other unsatisfying answers today. The answer is not a mystery. All right. It's not just big painting companies or people who have been around forever. This is just basic data tracking that every other business on the planet does. All right. Why don't I just give you my price Bible? I have a price Bible that I've developed over 15 years in my own business where we track all the data from the jobs. We break it all down by a unit price and we simplify the whole thing so we don't have to go by production rates. It's deeply, deeply data driven and deeply connected to market rates, things like that. Number one, here's the deal. I will help you come up with your own prices if you'd like with all the resources I have today. But you have to understand when somebody says I charge X for something, you have to then ask a bunch of questions, which is what stage of business are you in? For the last six years, we have been growing 30 to 50% every single year. We have a different pricing strategy than a single owner operator who's completely content with where they are. Number of employees and a Minnesota winter. We have lots of employees. We have a long Minnesota winter. We need a whole bunch of work. All right. So our pricing strategy is going to be different, not only in winter, but in summer as well, too. The goals of, of my business, 
what, what are the goals? If we actually want to shrink the business, we might raise and raise and raise our prices. If we want to grow our business, we'll probably either keep them steady or maybe even lower them uh, in the future. Depends on inflation and things too. My ideal projects. You have to know what you will do, what you won't do. All right. We actually have a list. I'm going to show you later. Projects we do, projects we don't do. My method of estimating is simplicity. My method is get to as many people as quickly as you can, effective as you can, and present an estimate on site and just do amazing amount of work for people because most of estimating is not up to you. We're going to get into that. Or the success of estimating is not up to you. And then we'll get into that in a little bit here. Managing an estimating team. We have a team of two estimators in my company. And again, based on our personalities, based on the goals of the business, we're going to do different things with our pricing. Um, one of the unique things that we've done is we have so much data that we've actually um, distilled down a lot of the data into unit pricing. We can even unit price a Victorian mansion. We have so much data on this stuff. We don't need to measure one. Generally, we have such a data set from years past where we have measured them. We've done uh, hover measurements where we use an app and it measures every square inch of a building and we get a good data set. So now when we go out there, there's really only about seven or eight or 10 different kinds of exterior houses we do. And they kind of lump into seven to eight to 10 buckets. And we do unit pricing, which is a very advanced form of that sort of thing that will get you close. Now, this is hyperbole, right? PVC clients, people be crazy. This is an internal thing we use in our company to determine if a client is right for us. Obviously, folks, this is hyperbole. This is meant to be a little bit funny, but we do track everything that makes a client not ideal for us or, or not ideal for a project like this. I put this up here because we have to know what clients we're going after. So a list of things. This does not disqualify a client. This does not make a client a bad client. We have a standard operating procedure, we have a promise, and we need to deliver on that promise. So some people don't fit into that. A list of things that we kind of look for and try to set proper expectations against are refuses our process, hostile communication, scattered communication, constantly changing the scope. They want to use their paint. They want to provide the paint. They ask for discounts. They stress timeline irrationally. Many very specific requests about a job we couldn't possibly um, uh, comply with. Um, different kinds of jobs that people have and they don't believe us or they don't trust us and uh, designers actually give us a lot of problems. It's really interesting. Um, we actually love designers, but they have to share our core values, just like general contractors. All right. So we have projects and again, hyperbole, we call this list the never again list. These are jobs that we, we, we say this because you have to estimate jobs that you can deliver on, on your promise. Right? So we have a list called never again. Uh, <coughs> What you need to know about this list is we can do every one of these, but we set proper expectations. We deliver on those expectations, but still in the end, some clients don't respond well to them because they have varied outcomes. And so then we say, well, listen, we can deliver on these, but if clients respond in variable ways to this, we can't do that because that throws a wrench in our business. So there's a list of jobs there that sometimes we don't naturally gravitate towards. We can deliver on, but the clients don't function well with them. So clients pre-qualify themselves a little bit. Uh, we don't have a phone number in my company. When um, you can have clients sort of pre-qualify themselves a little bit, they have to go through my website. And if going to my website and having an autofill plus telling me where the where you heard about me, the marketing, and then describing your project, if that is a bridge too high, um, we're about to invest somewhere between one and three hours coming to your house for free to give you a custom estimate from an expert on this. If that is too high a hurdle for them to, to go on, they're probably not gonna be an ideal client. All right, so what makes a good estimate? This is what I believe makes a good estimate. Uh, simplicity and intuitiveness, accuracy, 
modularity and options, a quick turnaround, addresses the needs directly and honestly, and not the needs you think they want, the actual needs of the client, setting proper expectations, which is paramount to almost everything else, consistency of marketing to gain trust. And then you have to make it easy for a client to not only find you, request an estimate, get an estimate, and then say yes to your job. So what makes a good estimate? I am a firm believer of estimate on the front, contract on the back. And we do not call it a contract. We call it an info sheet. What you're looking at here is there's a color-coded sheet uh, on the left, and that basically describes uh, all the things we promise to a client, and we also set expectations. We do make them sign and date it at the bottom, so ad hoc, it is a contract, but we want to make it a friendly contract. I, I'm not a fan of these 18-page legalistic things that scare clients. I'm also a firm believer of one-page estimates, which is every, this is a whole house um, cabinet wall trim project closets everything else everything is itemized by room options for every room one two three four five six options for a room and this can be done between 30 minutes and an hour and a half on site for the clients i'm a firm believer in this simple and intuitive so instant estimates on site uh, my estimating team uses microsoft surface tablets they use the notebook app and a digital pen and we walk through the house we actually lay out our digital uh, writing things based on the actual estimate layout. So when we walk through rooms, we're writing in the numbers with a digital pen. When we get back out to the uh, van, we just basically input it into an estimate template, print it in one of our mobile printers, 30 minutes in and out. And while that client has the appointment, we can actually give them an estimate on site. Now, here's the deal, folks. What do clients ask, but never really do? Or what do clients want to ask, but never really do? And for me, it's an easy answer, which is, are you going to take advantage of me, right? Contractors have a bad reputation for a reason. There's a lot of bad operators out there, very unprofessional, uh, scattered all over the place, uh, not doing the things that good businesses do. So what you have to understand is that you know you're trustworthy, right? The client does not know that. So when they ask who's going to be in my house, what kind of paint do you use? They may not even care who's in the house or what kind of paint they're going to use. What they're trying to ask you is, when, like specifically paint. Most people don't care what brand, what shine, anything else, as long as it's not builder's flat because they bought this house. It had builder's flat on it and you can't wash it. You can't scrub it. It's marked up everywhere and they like the color, but their kids touch the walls and now they have to repaint the entire house. What they're worried about is you coming in, charging a lot of money and then giving them builder's flat again and putting them in the same space. So when a client says to me, what kind of paint do you use? I'm already thinking, they're testing me to see if I'm going to take advantage of them. And so you can address the paint thing, but you also have to address the need of that, which is a lot of times when people talk about paint, we say, listen, we buy the best paint. It's duration home mat for your walls. Uh, we do not use builder's flat. Uh, builder's flat is a great primer, but we go two coats of the mat over the top of it. It looks beautiful. It's durable. It's washable. And it's going to be something you can live with with your family touches up well as well too. So it's not just the the paint because most people don't know the differences of paint. Most painters don't know the differences in paint. You have to address that question, honestly. And I'll get to your guys' questions. I see them rolling in here. Now, you have to address the needs of the client, honestly, and the needs that they have, that they have, not you have, right? You may want to talk about national awards, how good of a painter you are, the specific tape you use. Let's be honest, folks, as clients, they don't care. They don't know enough to care a lot of the time. What they're looking for is, are you going to take advantage of me? Are you going to do a good job? And is, is the experience going to be good? So in my company, we have sussed out the four basic needs of the client, the most important needs of the client. 
in the order of importance, help with color. Cleaning after we're done, moving furniture and communication. So what we do on our uh, info sheet, the thing that we make them shine, uh, sign, we actually list out, you can see on the bottom here, our promise to you and these four things. That is the most highly sought after needs of a client. And we want to make sure that we understand that I want to tell a client that we understand those and we're going to do those and you can hold us accountable to them. Setting proper expectations. This is a big one. So TDS, technical data sheet. What you're seeing here is a technical data sheet for deck stain. Um, a lot of the times um, we, when, when we get into problems, when we get an unhappy client, if we're being honest, most of the time it's because we set improper expectations. When a client says, how long is this deck stain gonna last? And we say, oh my God, I make it last longer than anybody else. It's gonna be great you know it's going to be one to two years based on the technical data sheet in minnesota winters what the client just heard was this may be five to ten years right you need to be honest with them and set proper expectations about the job you're doing the best most happy clients are made by you promising them something and then delivering on it whatever that promise is as long as you deliver on it you're going to make a happy client so methods for coming up with price gut Reasoning on first principles, industry benchmarks, job costing, production rates, unit pricing, and then market rate. We're going to kind of touch on each one of these here. So, uh, and I'll be getting to your guys' questions shortly. So, number one, gut. Listen, folks, honestly, I did this for a lot of years too. I did this for a decade in my own business, right? Everybody does this. This is what it is. If you think you have a sophisticated secret way of estimating, it's likely that this algorithm is in your head. It's not based on any data. And it's likely you're not making that much money, if we're being honest. It is the most common way. You get wild swings with uh, without job costing. And you have a punitive relationship with a client. I hear painters say this all the time. I got burned on that last one. I'm going to make sure I don't get burned on this next one. And it's not the client's fault, right? It's your fault for not tracking that. And you should not be punitive with your pricing. This is what I see all the time. And this is, I've been here before too. I can tell you, I can tell you what, uh, what this is like, cause I've been there. You go do estimates at night, right? You have three cabinet estimates back to back in an evening. Each one of those clients tells you, oh my God, that's so expensive. You go home that night, you feel like a crook. You feel like you've priced everything wrong. Your business is going to implode and you immediately change all your pricing based on what those three clients, you don't know if they were ideal clients. They may have been, they may not even be interested in painting their cabinets. They were just curious about it. They have no idea on the reference of price. They may were going to do it themselves and just wanted a second opinion. They may have never actually been legitimate clients and you need to be open to that. So those data points are going to be irrational and they're going to be skewed. They may also be right, but just because you have three people say you're overpriced doesn't mean you should completely change your pricing structure. And we'll get into that later. Number two, I love this sort of thing. This is a thought experiment. Um, reasoning on first principles. So number one, you can say, well, what should I charge? Well, just think, what do you want to make a year? You can actually back into this with some logic and some reason. So most craftspeople get paid $25 an hour as a W-2. Most paint business owners make $22 an hour, give or take. That's the national average, folks, if you don't believe me. Um, solopreneurs take home about 50% of solo uh, of their revenue. So if you're a single owner operator painter, all the money you make in a year, typically you put in your pocket, maybe half of that, give or take. So the thought experiment would be, I'll have to make more than a W2 painter if I own my own business. That's just the minimum, right? That, but we're going to probably, let's just set the goal at $75,000 a year. I want to make $75,000 a year. What do you need each day to get that goal? So basically what you do is you say, well, if I take home half my money, I take 75,000 times two. 
I'll have to bring in $150,000 of revenue in a year. There's 261 working days. So basically, if you say, uh, I want to make $75,000 a year, I'll have to create $575 of revenue each day, which is not a high target if you're a competent painter. So now you can see this isn't some mystery. This isn't some uh, mountain to climb. This isn't some unknown. This is a thing that with a couple basic math problems, we can figure out. You may not know what to charge for each thing, but you better be making, if you want to make 75 grand a year, you better be creating $575 of revenue a day, which means whatever you paint that day has to be at least worth $575. I would argue that that is a very low bar, but it's a thought experiment. Number, method number two, reasoning on first principles. How much you want to make this year as a um, as a solopreneur? Okay, we sorry, duplicate slide on that one. My fault. I, I merged two things here. Here's one I was looking for. Large company thought experiment. You want to have a bunch of painters. You want to make $200,000 this year profit in a company. We, again, have the knowns, 261 working days. Typically, these companies operate on about a 15% true net profit after owner's pay. So basically, if you bump that in there, divide by 0.15, you're going to need to make about $1.3 million in revenue. If you have 10 painters in that company, each one of those painters is going to have to create $511 of revenue per day. So now this is a math problem. This is not an unknown. Those are big numbers. But again, when you break it down in its simplicity, daily sort of thing, it's not a big deal. Method number three of coming up with price, industry benchmarks. So we have some assumptions here. Um, basically, uh, most of the industry for larger businesses uh, kind of puts a pin in some benchmarks of 15% materials and 40% labor for each product. Uh, project. That is a variable price for that. What that doesn't take into account is overhead and anything else. But if you want to know if your jobs are going well, typically, if you keep materials under 15% and labor 40% or under, you're probably doing okay on that job. It's a good place to start. You can make an argument that those should be higher or lower, give or take. But you can also come up with price based on those benchmarks, which is Here's an example of a commercial project estimator Andy and I did years ago. We, had, we don't have a data set for this type of commercial building, right? It had a crazy um, rock face block that had these big returns every four inches like this. So in, 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 um, in effect, it basically tripled the exterior space uh, contact area of this building. So what we did, we did some deduction. We just did some sniff tests, right? So we're going into the assumptions that we want to keep materials to 15% or under. Uh, on a rock face block and this huge returns, we're probably going to get 100 square foot of coverage. Uh, that that might be a little low, but we we don't want to overestimate that. And for this thing, for Loxon XP, I think our price at the time was 41 bucks a gallon, give or take. So we measured the entire building. Uh, we came up with 19,000 square feet. We divided by the coverage rate of the paint, 100, which said, well, if we're going to paint this building, we're basically going to need about 194 gallons of paint times $41 a gallon, which said, uh, based on our best sniff test, we're going to spend over $8,000 on materials just for this building. And if we want 8,000 to only be 15% of the price, we divide by 15. And that says, if all of our assumptions are correct, if we charge about $54,000 for this commercial building, and that coverage rate is right, and the price per gallon is right, this will be a profitable job if we can keep labor in, uh, in, in tow there. Now, <laughs> we can come up with a project plan for this job based on that as well. You, simple math problems and deduction will get you here. If, if we think we're going to charge $54,000 for this project and 40% of that is going to be labor, that gives us a labor budget of about $21,500. 
divided by a minimum production rate of $55 an hour, we're going to have to complete this building in 392 hours. Simple math, everybody, just by deduction, give or take, all right? Method four, job costing. And we're going to show you a pretty cool experiment here. Um, job costing is the, is the um, tracking of material labor per project. So basically, you do a project, you put your material, you put your labor in there, you compare to the benchmarks, and then you adjust your price as needed. Assumptions and decisions based on job costing. Now, remember, we always, we always, we always focus on the price of a job. There is usually not a magic price to get a job. Well, I can tell you, well, there is actually a magic price. You could sell every job you wanted if you sold it for 10% of the actual cost of doing the job, right? But we also have to run profitable businesses that will be in, you know, in business for more than six months. So after you job cost, the only thing you should be looking at is not price alone. You can raise your rates. Did you get a callback on that project? So did you do something wrong that had that you had to do rework? Was this job an anomaly? Was this just a one-off that's not a great data point here? And um, the other thing that almost nobody talks about is when, let's say you charge $425 for a bedroom wall repaint, right? Did you sell 50% of those jobs? Because that, that's sometimes a, a benchmark that people aren't familiar with, which is if you're selling about 50% of your jobs, depending on the size of your business, you're probably priced about appropriately. A benchmark in our industry of success ratio, SR, is about 50%. So if you're selling about 50% of your jobs, you're probably in there. Now, the other variable that nobody ever talks about is, is your schedule full? So people will say, what price should I sell this job? And I'll say, well, if you sell it for X, can you produce it profitably? And will you have enough to continue business? Those are two very... Uh, important variables, important variables that need to be taken into account. Because if the only way you can produce a job profitably is to vastly overcharge, you're going to have a dead schedule. So that's going to mean that you need to be a better painter, a more efficient painter to give that value to the client. All right. So before that, I am going to show you guys a method. I'm going to Actually go through some job costing with you guys here. Uh, give me one second. All right, we're going to go through a little experiment here, right? So let me bring this up here. Let's go. All right, give me one second. I want to arrange these screens. No, nope, we're going to. Sorry, folks, rearranging screens here. Traffic copping my own stuff. Okay, let's go through this together here. So I'm going to show you a quick example of how we use job costing uh, to come up with price on a project here. There we go. It's on the right side of the screen now. So... Let's say we have this. This is a job costing template that I'll send you in a later show. We have a Smith project. The things that we enter are the revenue for this project. So let's say we charge $27.50 for this project. We used duration, eight gallons, just call it 40 bucks a gallon. So we spent $320 in materials. We have Jim and we have Julie working here. And you can see that I entered their wages, 25 and 26. They each work 20 hours on this, which means it's a 40-hour job, give or take. So this would be a two-day project uh, in my company. So we go up here. Uh, when we enter in that 
material and that labor number, we're spit out some numbers here that are very important uh, to the project. Number one, we have a budget here of 36 hours based on that algorithm I just showed you guys. And they actually brought this project in 11% uh, over budget, right? Because they spent 40 hours on this and the budget was 36. Now, here's how we start making decisions on job costing. Our goal, our benchmarks right here are the things that kind of determine if it was a good job or a bad job. So the main one is this, the gross profit. Our goal in our company is to have 45% gross profit. That would mean materials is 15% or less, labor is 40% or less. We hit 42% gross profit on this job. So 3% uh, over, uh, excuse me, 3% off budget. We needed to do 3% better on this to hit our benchmark. Our benchmark for materials is 15%. We did 12. So we actually did really good on that. Now, labor went 6% over on this thing, six points over, give or take. So now we have some decisions to make. Do we price this project differently or do we somehow make the painters more efficient or coach them or train them in a method? So a couple ways we can do this, which is if we believe there's kind of a decision tree here, let's say our painters perform perfectly. There was not a wasted gallon of paint. They hustled, they hustled, they hustled. There's nothing they could have done differently to get this job profitable. Then as the owner or an estimator, you need to say, then the pricing was actually off, right? So then we're going to get in here and say, well, instead of 2750, we can actually experiment with this price to get that over 45. So this is the number I'm going to highlight this for you guys, because this is the number that we are going to be watching, right? So keep your eye on, keep your eye on 42, right? So we charge 2750. The thought experiment is what price would we have to charge in order to get this just over 45%? So let's start going, let's just say 2,800. Okay, then moved it to 43%, 2,900, 45%, we did it. If our painters were to perform the same, if the material usage would have been the same and we charged another $150, this job now would be a profitable project versus an unprofitable project. That's how we use job costing. This is especially useful for when you're starting off or when you start doing Victorian mansion restorations and you don't have a crazy data set, right? So now we're going to go back and we're going to keep it at 2750, right? So we have this here. I'm going to I'm going to back this out a little bit and this is going to be a small thing, but okay, let's say we actually oversold this project. We actually got more revenue than we thought we could have. We charge a premium for this project because maybe, you know, they wanted it right now, Sunday work, you know, something like that. And let's say we don't believe our painters performed as well as they could. There were some hiccups in the process. Uh, maybe they had to rework some things. The patching wasn't done right, things like that. So let's just say right now that, okay, there's no way we could have got more money out of this. It's priced absolutely perfectly. We got plenty of budget for our painters. Now what we're going to have to do is say, okay, in the future then, we're going to have to coach up our painters to do better. So let's say instead of 20 hours, it took them 18 and 18. Look at that. See that number changing right there? We almost got 45. So let's see if our painters took 17 hours. Oh, that's a big jump here. Let's go hours. Yep, 46. So that, that bumped it over into, let's see. All right, so this is really interesting. All right. This is a cool piece of data because our painters in the original scenario took 20 hours per to get this job and it did not become profitable. 
in this scenario, they each saved an hour and a half of their own time, which is basically, I don't know, a couple percentage uh, different. Uh, let's see, that'd be one point, that'd be 7% faster on a job like that. And they brought it into profitability. So there's two ways you can handle this and you need to be honest. It's not always just price, right? So I love doing that, messing around with these things and then uh, trying to figure out, you can actually make a project plan and say, well, this is the amount of hours. We're going to need 672 hours for this Victorian restoration. And you can actually plug that in here and it'll say, well, you're going to have to try to capture this price if that assumption is right. And then you need the challenges. Can you get that price to support your painters and also provide value to the client? So, all right, let's go back into this one here. All right. Unit pricing. All right. I love doing that stuff. That is, that is a super fun thing. I'm going to, I'm going to go through a couple more slides and then we're going to get to every, um, we're going to get to everybody's questions and stuff here as well too. So method number five, unit pricing. This is an advanced form of stuff. Uh, we have such a crazy data set in my company. We can actually distill an entire interior of a house, doors, windows, baseboard, crown, cabinets, built-ins, walls, ceilings, everything else even stair rail banisters and, and railing systems into unit prices because we have such a great data set. We don't need to measure anything anymore. There's not that much variability in a six foot eight passage door uh, in a casement, double hung or slider window, things like that. Patio doors, double, triple, things like that. So we can we have such a data set. We've actually distilled this down into when you have a double hung window that needs to be primed in two coats of enamel, we charge this for it because the data set proves it out. So this comes from job costing over a long period of time. The pro price comes easy. We have a unit price per cabinet door and drawer, per double hung window, per fixed window, things like that. The complexity and the variables uh, can now be exteriors. This makes exteriors a little harder because it's, it's way harder to take the added variables of exterior when you have landscaping, weather, prep, things like that. It can be done. We do it, but you have to have a huge data set and you need to be monitoring it weekly. All right, let's get back to... Sorry, I got to get back to my presentation. All right, production rates. Uh, this is the thing that I would urge most people to do because this is a great place to start. And this is where I started years and years ago. Basically, what you do is you paint something, you measure it, you see how much paint you use, you see how much time you used and, and the price that you charge for it. And you can actually say, I charge or I created or I charged a dollar a square foot on walls when I repaint them, things like that. So um, this is the way uh, that most painters aren't that consistent to do this sort of thing, but it is honestly one of the best ways to start, which is paint a house, measure it, you applied that, you know, your revenue to it, and then figure out not only what your charge rate was, but what your production rate is. There's probably a good time to talk about the difference between charge rate and production rate, which is most people brag about their charge rate. I charge $100 an hour but they don't produce that. Produce and production rate is the actual number you want because people can charge whatever they want. It doesn't mean they're making that. So in the end, you need that other second number there. All right, so I should say too, uh, the pros of this is you can have a metric-based bidding system that's transferable to anybody. If you have a good data set and you track all this stuff, you can teach an estimator to do this or have a replicable result all the time uh, by basically measuring, which is great. All humans can measure uh, to a certain regard, and then they can apply a production rate or an hourly charge rate to it. The cons are you must be consistent and you have to have a large data set to do this sort of thing. And you got to measure accurate too. Now, fatal flaws of estimating by production rates. This might be specific to my company. It might be specific to other companies. Whose production rates? 
my production rates are vastly different than the people I employ, right? I've been doing this for 30 years. They've not been doing it for 30 years. There's a lot of wisdom and experience that goes into that. Measuring complex substrates. Look at this Victorian mansion we have here. Do you have a ton of data set? Do you have 200 data points of doing this sort of thing, right? And every single Victorian mansion we do is a little bit different every time. Uh, and if you don't have a data point, now what? Let's say you have to have, do this specific mural on the roof of a shed, a flag mural on the roof of a metal shed, and you've never done it before. There's no production rate for that. There's nothing you can measure and input in there. So, yeah. All right, market rate. This is the thing that gets me jazzed up. So it demands lots of repetitions, right? So uh, success ratio. If you sell about 50% of your jobs, you are theoretically priced right for a larger company. Now, if you have a much smaller company, if you're a single person company, the theory goes, you can actually sell less. You could sell 10, 20, 30% of your work, and you're going to have plenty of work to fill your schedule. So that 50% is, is the most useful number for companies, probably over 10 painters and a million dollars of revenue, give or take. You can make the argument 500K, three to five painters, but you have to be, uh, if you want to do market rate stuff, you need to have enough work for your business. When you sell that work, it needs to be profitable and you need to be looking at it daily, weekly, and monthly, that pattern detection as owners. And I love these questions coming in, guys. This is a hot topic. I'm going to just cycle through all those things in a second here. Um, okay, start tracking now. This is what I would urge you guys to do. This is my actual sales tracker from last year right here. Um, I, the numbers are too small, but you can see all my totals. We broke it out between me, my estimator, Ian, my estimator, Andy, things like that. We track success ratio, average job size, everything else. The basis of this is data tracking, which is you got to figure out how many leads are coming in. Uh, how I do it in my business is leads come through our website and we Zapier that into a G sheet. So every time somebody goes to my website and they put in an inquiry, their, all their information goes on a line on a spreadsheet and we track those. We can quantify those. We can see what time of day, uh, what days of the week, what months of the year, and the cycles that they go through. We also track the number of estimates. Not every lead turns into an estimate. So now we have this funnel of leads, estimates, and then we, we track success ratio, SR, as we call in the industry. How many jobs did you sell versus how many did you do? So now estimates turn into sold jobs and then produce jobs. So we also want to track average job size. Uh, we track that very carefully because there's two main ratios that we follow in this company. Success ratio and average job size. If the average job size goes low, uh, we, I think we set our AJS this year for a sold amount at about $6,700 for an average job we do. If that, if that average job size goes lower, that success ratio is going to be have to high, be higher to make up for that, to hit a revenue goal. If the average job size goes way up, you can theoretically sell less jobs and produce the same amount of revenue. So what you don't want to do is hammer your estimators when AJS goes up or down if you're not tracking the SR as well, too. So that's a that's an interplay uh, over over above all that uh, is basically the revenue goal for the year, give or take. Bedroom pricing experiment, uh, <laughs> determining the market value. So here's the deal, folks. This is the results of my experiment. I, I go all over the United States and we do an estimating master's class. And I have people estimate anonymously the same project and we track it in all major metro areas. And I use data points from like uh, Seattle, um, uh, New Jersey, that upper East Coast area like that. Uh, we go Bay Area, we go Midwest, St. Louis, uh, Minnesota, and I think we do one in Florida, Miami area too. Now, here's the deal, folks. This is a weird data set that you got to have to like um, 
parse through a little bit. Uh, I see people asking for resources. I'm going to give my email address later and you guys can email me and ask for any resources. Um, most people will say, oh, I couldn't possibly tell you because I'm in Boston or you're in St. Louis. Here's the deal, folks. When we aggregate these things, every major metro area, plus or minus 5%, says they charge $639 to paint the walls in a 15 by 15 foot bedroom. Not ceiling, not trim. This is patch the walls, two coats of paint, deep prep and get out of there. That's it. One solid color. Uh, most people self-report that they produce about $80 an hour production rate. Uh, and I throw out the outliers because in every single master's class I do, somebody estimates the trim as well, even though we're very careful not to do that. So we have people that say I charge a hundred bucks for that bedroom. And we have people that say I charge $3,200 for that bedroom. When you throw out the outliers, like a good statistical test would do, you find out that almost every major metro area minus the Midwest charges about $639 a bedroom. Now, what's really interesting is that this is self-reported. All right. We're not you have to put an asterisk on this data set, which is this is people coming to a thing telling us what they charge, not what they produce. It could be that everybody comes to my master's classes are outliers that produce a vastly more revenue per hour than anybody else. But this is self-reported. Most of these businesses do not produce $80 of revenue an hour, right? So we have to be really careful about this data set. Uh, the only anomaly that I found in the country is the Midwest, uh, plus or minus maybe 100 bucks on one of these things. So if that industry average across the entire United States is 639, the St. Louis, Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul area will likely uh, be in that 539 sort of thing like that. So um, yeah, interesting data set. This is not me telling you what to charge because honestly, if, if the average painter that comes in my master class reports that they charge $639 of revenue, honestly, I'm going to call a little BS. I'm going to have to see last year's profit and loss statement. And I'm going to have to see every estimate you did and every job you finished to see, are you consistently selling and producing $639 bedrooms at $80 an hour? Honestly, it's probably not. Okay. Most of the people who come to my master's classes are on average, bigger businesses, more professional, but most of them do not consistently job cost to give us that number. So I will tell you this, it's an interesting thing, but it's a data set that you have to put um, a filter on and say, based on these conditions, based on how we know this so thing, the, this thing. So, all right, determining uh, based on job costing data. So what you're looking at here is a thing I did last week. Uh, to, we're probably gonna have to uh, do a price increase in the first quarter of the year for my, um, uh, for my business. And so what I did was determine if we need to raise prices or not. Um, I went through and I took every one of the 600 jobs that we did last year and I arranged it by profitability, the most profitable to the least profitable. And then I sorted them by interior, by exterior. And then you can even parse them out by cabinet, walls, trim, things like that. What you're seeing is a spreadsheet I made that actually parsed out all my jobs. And we can see pattern detection, which is, wow, decks were very profitable last year to the point where we can actually either keep the same price or maybe even take it down a little bit. We look at some other jobs where you're like, oh, interesting. Uh, we have seven different types of exterior house repaints that we do on number three, like a medium sized house. Actually, we're not that profitable on those. So what makes a, a small house profitable? What makes a large house profitable? What doesn't make a medium house profitable? We're looking for patterns in there like that. We do not want to overcharge clients. We want to provide the max value, but we also have to sell enough to get those into our business. So the, all this is what you're looking at now is an aggregate of 600 jobs that I've job costed. We're looking at revenue per hour, material, labor, 
and total gross profit. And I can sort those and start seeing what did well, what didn't, and what needs to have a price increase or what areas can we do a price increase? The fun stuff. So you're adding data to your feelings. This is that uh, job. Uh, this is that sales tracker again here. You can actually start working on some marketing stuff. So in this time of the year, people are hot on marketing. I need jobs. It's winter. It's slow. You can determine your success ratios, your average job size. You can see what's selling, what's not, and base your marketing on that. When you track your leads, your estimates, your sold jobs, and completed jobs, you can actually start assigning uh, some marketing to that, which is where are these jobs coming from? Who are we working for? How do we find more of them? Industry benchmark for marketing is usually 3.5 to 5%, uh, 5% to 10% for growing companies. But honestly, folks, if you're going 8 to 10%, that is a lot of money. That is a lot of money on marketing. You should be able to accomplish a lot, plus or minus 5, 6%, give or take. You can actually ascertain a cost per lead. You can take all the marketing you did, divide it by the amounts of leads, and you're going to come up with a, a cost per lead. In my company, give or take, we waffle between some are 40 bucks a lead, some are you know 500 bucks a lead, but really we're averaging about 125 bucks per lead, give or take. Uh, my goal is to get that under 100. We can, we can consistently get it about 110, 111, give or take, but uh, that's just what it is. Um, it seems like a lot, but when you track this, this is actually an industry average. If you talk to a bunch of big businesses out there, they would actually be pretty happy with 110 to $125 cost per lead. What that means in a $3 million business, it's likely we're going to have to spend $150,000 in marketing in a year, plus or minus. And this overlaying the data plus the feelings. So leads come in, not consistently all, the, all year, right? So what we did, uh, I tracked when the leads came in and I overlaid it per month. And our feelings were there's a huge spike in spring and a huge spike in fall in Minnesota when people get excited to do exterior work. And then when they didn't do the exterior work and winter's coming and they get real excited about it again. And this graph overlays data to the feelings of, yes, look at that. In January and February, the leads don't come in like they come in in May and September, right? So now we actually know if, if it feels like that's happening, now we actually know. Success ratio benchmarks. So think about this. This is more thought experiment stuff. This is the, this is the areas that I love to dwell in here. So uh, we're going to be getting to Instagram, TikTok comments, uh, Facebook comments, things like that. There's an enormous amount of people commenting and watching. Uh, as soon as I'm done with this, a couple more slides, we're going to hop into that. So if you're a solopreneur and you want to take home that proverbial $75,000 a year, you're going to have to create $150,000 of revenue. If your average job size is $5,000, that means you're going to do 30 jobs a year. If you have an 80% SR, because basically everything is word of mouth and everybody just says yes, you're only going to have to do 38 estimates this year. There's only 52 weeks in a year. That's less than one estimate per week. So now this answers that proverbial question. Oh my God, 150,000 of revenue as a single person. How many estimates is that going to take? Well, by a simple math problem and things that you can track, you can say, well, if I perform very well, I only have to do 38 estimates this year. If you have 10 painters, a $1.1 million company, and you have the same average job size as that solopreneur, you're going to have to do 220 jobs that year. If you sell half of the jobs you do, that means you're going to have to go on 440 estimates in a year, 260 working days. Uh, so you're basically going to have to do two a day, less than two a day, give or take. But that, that gives you some idea of the amount of leads you're going to need. If you're, you have 50% uh, of the leads that come into your business don't turn into estimates, now you're going to have to get 880 leads in to get 440 estimates, to get 220 jobs, to get 1.1 million a year. You can see how you can use this simple thought experiment uh, to come up with basic metrics for your business. Now, wisdom that I've been given over the years, and I found in my data too. 
here's one of the most useful things I can tell you about estimating. That is kind of a truism, right? So a third of the people will never use you. There's preference, right? People like fine steakhouses, people like Arby's, and it doesn't make them good. It doesn't make them bad. It just makes them, they are, right? A third of the people you encounter will never use you. A third of the people will use you unless you throw up on their shoes during the estimate. They're just going to pick you no matter what, basically. A third of the people might be swayed or might be sold or might have the chance to be reckoned with to get that job in. So if you think about it in that thirds, third are always going to say no. Third are always going to say yes. A third, maybe. Depending on how good your marketing is, how good you are, how good your product is and value is, you might be able to sway some. Number one, you always have to, people always talk about what price is it? Is it the right price or the wrong price? I will say that is determined by answering a couple questions. If you sell it for that, can you produce it profitably? And number two, if you sell it for that, do you have enough work in your business? A number one is filling your schedule. A number, no, not a number two. A number one is filling your schedule. A two is producing those jobs profitably. That's your goal as a paint business owner. Also, you may never feel like you solved this. This is not a thing where you come to the end, you're like, oh my God, we're good. The reason we're doing a data dive in my company is because things are changing out there, folks. There's a change in the economy. I don't know if it's going to affect my business or not, but I'm tracking that data, looking for things. So we can either change products, change process, change price, change our format, anything like that. And the basic truth, folks, 90% of all painters, 90, 98 to 99% of all painters are single owner operators. 90% of them should raise their prices right now. Uh, most paint businesses only take home $43,000 a year. Most paint businesses go out of business every two years. And every single one of those painting businesses says, I'm the best, I'm the most expensive, and I'm booked out two years. Those things don't match in economics, folks. Uh, this is just advice from one uh, master craftsperson to another. Price modifiers. Are you in growth mode or are you in stable mode? Lead time. Do you need work or are you booked out four months? Are you a tight niche? Do you only do cabinets, not even walls? Or do you do Victorian mansions, walls, ceiling, drywall, carpentry, other things? And then seasonal demand. These are things that all can change price, right? Now, here's back to that triangulation. When you think about price, think about it like this. Uh, we don't use the same pricing strategy on every job. Sometimes we'll go with gut. If we're asked to do a one-off project, a beer mural on a silo on short notice, we don't have a large data set, folks. All right, nobody does. So you're gonna have to go with gut and experience. There are production rates that we know we have too, but then there's also the market rate. You can see how gut and market dwell in a lot of feelings. Production rate and market dwell on the data side. The market, I feel, is the greatest combination of feelings, data, uh, uh, pattern detection, and then data. Still have questions? <laughs> you may never feel 100% comfortable with price and estimating. It just is. The price is not set by you. It's set by hundreds of irrational humans that we call clients. Irrational does not mean bad. It just means when a client says your price is too high, based on what? We don't know what that's based on, right? So you need a large data set to actually figure out if they're right or not. Offer more value, not just price, right? People think we adjust the price, we find a magic price, and we blow up and we're profitable. We have as much work as we can. We focus way more on the value. What is the outcome of the project? What is the experience like? And does it justify that price? If you are based, this is a, this is a vastly, vastly hyperbolic, generalized statement that may or may not be true, but I feel it is based on uh, the people I've known in the industry. If you're a solopreneur, if you're a single owner operator and you're not taking home 
$80,000 a year, you need to change one of two things. This is not what you charge. This is not, I made this much revenue. If you're not putting $80,000 of owner pay and profit in your pocket every year, you need to get better and faster at painting, or you need to raise your rates or both. Honest truth, folks. Now, here's the deal. Look at this. People are saying, what about production rates? What about pricing? Guess what? For a couple hundred bucks, you can just get them from the PCA too. These are mine. These are the cost and estimating guides. If you have nothing to start off with and you want to get kickstarted, the information is all here, folks. We will spend $6,000 on a sprayer and $83,000 on a truck. And here they are for a couple hundred bucks. You can get pricing tables from the Painting Contractors Association, the, the, the largest uh, trade association in our industry. They're all there, folks. They're all there for you right there. Also, here's my promise to you guys. Remember, these are the resources I'm going to give you at the end of this show. You email me, nick at nickslavic.com, and I will send you my estimate template. I will send you my estimating SOP. Remember the SOPs from a couple of shows ago? That contract, that info sheet, and I'll actually send you the what's next document as well too. We attach that uh, to every estimate to let clients know uh, the proper expectations are being made. So I'm going to leave this up for a little bit here, uh, and let's get into answering some questions. So all right uh we'll go through ig first thank you guys for watching a whole bunch of people watching this morning thank you all great to see all the familiar faces on here uh stanley painting good morning to you God, i got a lot of questions i'm gonna try to burn through these uh asha good morning friend and painter from minnesota holy cow folks scrolling 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 dominic crowley good morning my friend Victor Burnick, uh, Africa, labor cost for a full day is about 10 US dollars. What do you think? What quality of painting can be obtained for that money? Well, it depends um, what the economy looks like. If the average rate is $100 in the US and it's $10 in where you're from in Africa, uh, but everything else is 90% reduced cost of living then, then it's equivalent. But I have a feeling that's a depressed labor rate. Um, when I've, I've been to Brazil a few times, uh, looking into the labor market there with fellow master craftspeople and literally people are making, you know, $3 an hour, give or take. And it's, and it's not equivalent. The cost of living is not that much lower there. So there are going to be areas there and, um, there are going to be economic factors and, and that's a very good, um, that's a very good sort of asterisk to put on this whole thing, which is residential repaint data from the United States, currently in the economy on a fastly growing company at about the $3 million range. So that's great, uh, that's great perspective, Victor. All right, paint finisher. I only did 19 estimates for $182,000 of revenue last year. Yes, all of our businesses are gonna be different here uh, with this sort of thing. Um, I have the most bread and butter residential repaint company you can find. We do interior, we do exterior. Our average job size is between six and 7,000 and we do about 600 of those a year, give or take. So yeah, every business is gonna be a little different. It's a uh, it's good data set. Uh, the one thing I would ask you of Mr. Paint Finisher is when you job cost all those, were they profitable? Did you do the 15% material, 40% labor? If the answer is yes to those, congrats, man. Track that job costing, make sure that those 19 estimates you did for that 182,000 uh, was par for the course. Do, 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 do. All right, we caught up. Micah Stelter, how you doing, my friend from Olive? All our friends at Olive. Uh, let's see. All right, thanks everybody for watching on TikTok here. 
new platform. So it's kind of fun to do that stuff. All right. Now the Facebook comments, let's dig in here, folks. All right. Uh, Chase, how's it going? My friend, John Milkovich, Peter from Melbourne, Australia. Good morning. Uh, we got people watching from Kansas city, Vancouver, uh, Montana. Holy cow. Right on UK. Juan Jimenez. Good morning. Jesse Allen, uh, my fellow Minnesotan. All right, folks, let's get to it here. Uh, Peter, how do you come up with production price uh, of $60 an hour? So there's some benchmarks, right? Um, this is based on the theory that a paint business needs a certain amount of revenue to operate productively. In the past, we've used 55, we've used 60, we've used 65. Honestly, folks, that number needs a change. A basic production rate is $75 an hour. I would argue that if you want to be considered a professional painting company, make enough money to offset your risk and be in business for more than one to three years, your company should be producing $75 of revenue an hour or more, give or take, for small companies. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see what else we got here. All right. Uh, unique Dimitri Painters. Which one is better to charge work uh to charge per work or by squares. Yes, so uh, we just did a large treatise on this. That was an early comment. I'm sure you can find something to use there. Chris Kent, good morning. Oh, he's from Namibia. Good morning. Dave Pine, what's your response to you're the highest quote we've received? We hear that a lot because we are only a few legit companies in our market. There's a lot of chucks in the trucks we under, that undervalue the service and have no overhead. It's comparing apples to oranges. So here's the deal, uh, Dave. I have never got any traction talking down about any other painters. Now, it doesn't sound like you're talking down. You're actually giving facts. But to the client, I've seen them disconnect and actually think like you're trying to talk down about the other painters who might actually be doing a good job. So what we do is like, listen, folks, we want to deliver on a promise. This is the thing we can promise. We want to give you the highest value, the finest finishes, the best experience. We have an entire team of people. We have an estimator. We have a project manager. We have a coordinator. We have the owner of the company. We have a crew leader craftsman and an apprentice on your job. So for that price, here's what we can deliver. We are accountable and you're going to have seven people at your disposal for this project. If you don't choose us, that's just fine. But that's what we're offering you. So is that a value to you? A seven person team of master craftspeople and experts to paint your one bedroom. That's what we offer you. That's how typically we go about it. How do you tell them you're not a good fit? Oh, this is easy. So people have a lot of head trash about this. When we find out that a client is just not going to be a good fit for any number of reasons, remember the PVC slide. Here's what I say. Listen, thank you for the opportunity to do this. It's my feeling that you would probably be better served by another contractor. So thanks again for the opportunity. Best of luck to you on your project. That's what we do. All right. Fountain City. Let's see. We've used 15% 40, 15% material, 40% labor baseline since starting my company and my pricing has always stayed profitable. Well, here's the deal. Your pricing might've been profitable without that, but you would never know. So Fountain City, that is a perfect example of, are you profitable? Job costing will answer that. John Busick, my good friend. When closing an estimate on site and client asks when you can do the job, do you pull up the schedule and plug them in or give them a rough time frame? Yes. I love this. So John at our leadership team meeting every Monday morning, our production team of two tells our estimating team what the lead time is for every project, walls, cabinets, trim, exterior decks, miscellaneous projects. We actually assign it's two to three, two to three, three to five, one to three, one to two, something like that. So then that week when our estimators go out, 
when we get that, because literally, right, John, we've been on a thousand, not a thousand, tens of thousands of estimates, right? I did 800 estimates a year for 13 years, give or take. When we're on those estimates, they always talk about price. They sometimes talk about paint. They always talk about color. And then the next step is right before you leave, if I say yes, when can you do it? We take those numbers and then the estimators give them that rough timeline. They say, listen, we get an update every week from our production team. And for that particular job for kitchen cabinets, it's one to two weeks. So if you have a color, you're not waiting on a carpenter and all you're doing is waiting on us, we can get to you in one to two weeks. If you have not picked a color, if you still are waiting on carpentry, now we're on your timeline, give or take. <coughs> oh man, thank you all for watching. And oh, at this point right now, folks, I will mention this. We've kind of hit a critical mass. We got tons of people watching. Please, as a favor to me, share this show. You don't even have to write a comment description just hit share share it to your timeline share it to your story share it to a group get other people in here like this uh, that could benefit from this i benefited greatly where i am today is a benefit of information like this and i want to share that with you guys too hit share right now oscar milan good morning uh paul peltier i'm at the point where i've got expectations uh management covered that means a lot of other good practices are in place and the job will go well yep uh, managing prosper expectations is more and more important. And I realize that as we go on here. So Dave Cusson, thank you so much for watching. Jesse McCandless, this is one I've been waiting for. Have great luck using really similar pricing to yours on interiors last year. Really need to revise my exterior estimate SOP. Absolutely. So back to that show, first one of the year, the SOPs are there for you, Jesse. I know you probably have my SOPs anyway. So Tony Esposito, bingo. My closing rate dropped from 80% to 50 to 55 and we're booked in advance. Glad to see uh, I'm doing sort of right. Yes, Tony, I don't know if you job cost or not. Please, if you don't, job cost every project to make sure that that statement you made is absolutely right. Uh, Brandon Miller, killer live today. Thanks, man. I really do appreciate that. Uh, Justin Cowles, thanks for doing these, Nick. These are fantastic. I'm here for you. Oh, Pete, my friend, Pete, other other than hiring decent human beings, how structurally and, intent, and, and inventively have you worked to incentivize more job efficiency? It seems like employees have a higher level of motivation incentives and less of, okay, so here's the deal. Uh, nobody's gonna work for your business like you do. You just have to put that as a level, right? Like we're gonna, we're gonna break ourselves, we're gonna martyr ourselves. Other people are gonna be awesome. They're gonna do versions of that, but you can't expect that out of everybody. That's not a good boss thing to do. The best way I've done to incentive, incentivize profitability is to tie the things that would create profit to people's, um, compensation plan. So if you take, for example, one of my painters uh, who's been here more than a year, we're basically rate them on four things, which is number one, attendance. We want you here for 2000 hours a year. That's a 40 hour a week job. 75% of your jobs have to hit that 45% gross profit. And we need four updates from you. We need a project plan at 8 a.m. We need a 3 p.m. update on that project plan. We need you to fill out uh, labor and material on our jump sheets, our work orders, and we need before and after pictures. So you can see how all of this stuff, those project plans um, mandate that we have to plan out the project from start to finish to get it 10% under budget. So now all of a sudden we're being intentional about the planning. It has to be updated every day. So those are two of the updates. And you heard, you heard me say material and labor. They have to fill out paint quantity and labor use so that we can job costs so that we can see if the project is profitable. And in order for people to be considered for a raise in my company or to keep their employment, 75% of their jobs have to hit that GP. So now in effect, what we're doing is we're saying, if you want the magic things that this company has to offer, 
we need to have a baseline of profitability. So it's this huge macro um, sort of ecosphere that all is tied together uh, with things like that. Chris Kent, we found that when putting three people or folks on a job ideal for two people, the labor budget always goes over. Others have told me this should never matter. What have you noted? No, that absolutely matters, right? It may not matter in the commercial world where you're stacking 20 painters anyway, but uh, ideally, if I had it my way, I would have one person cruise, but I don't want to do that to my people. I want them to learn together. I want them to have a person there on site to help. So ideal crew is two size uh, for a company like mine that's training. If you put three people on a crew, it has to be very carefully organized. If you stack people, you're not just, it's not a Lego. It's not a math problem where it gets that much faster. If you stack more and more people, uh, you'll get less and less done every hour. That's how humans are. <clears throat> Justin Cowell, what software do you use? uh, for that AutoCAD looking house, uh, square foot measurement. So, uh, it's an app called hover H O V E R. And for the price of $40 to hundred dollars per house, you can take eight images and it will actually spit out a 3d, um, uh, model of that house. And it will measure every dang thing for you. We did this for years. That's what created our data set. And now we don't have to do it anymore. Cause when we walk up to a house, we know what the measurements are and it fits into one of seven to eight buckets uh, for exterior painting, things like that. So, uh, let's see here. Actually, you know, let me hide that last comment. Sorry. I've been, I've been slack on that. And we'll go to Mike Danahy, good friend, Mike Danahy here. Okay. How does your estimate differ between an empty house that's close to your shop versus a fully furnished functioning home, messy with pets and an hour drive away? Great question. It doesn't. I want my data set to be absolutely pure. <clears throat> so what I do is we charge, we take my price Bible and we overlay it on the house. We may factor for an hour away occasionally. We may factor for a lot of cleaning, but honestly, people hyper-focus on that stuff. It almost never happens. The best practice is to charge a consistent price and then you have a consistent data set. Because if you charge that uh, for an hour away, you charge 30% more, give or take, and you job cost that, you might say, wow, listen, I'm going to charge that much for every job. We like to have a pure data set where we charge the same, and then we can actually do that pattern detection, and every job doesn't have to be asterisk. Now, it's not a wrong thing to do, but for my company and the volume we do, I would it's more of a benefit to have a pure, consistent data set. Tony Esposito, the Excel sheet you use for job costing, could you share? Uh, yes, if you email me, I will, I will give that to you. I print out, uh, track my costs. I literally have 15 material and 45 labor, 40% profit. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. All right. Right now, I remember, oh, we also have to be careful with profit. That's gross profit. You still have to take out owner's pay and overhead, and that gives you net profit from that. So, all right. Pete, how do you compensate the estimator role, uh, incentive commission? Uh, what would be a baseline top line expectation for sales production? Oh, man, this is the greatest thing ever. I love this. I deep dive into this. So here's, <clears throat> I'm going to talk just agnostically throughout the industry what I found. Typically, uh, you want to incentivize estimators to sell a lot of stuff, right? So if you just give them a $100,000 salary, not based on any performance, uh, they may be incentive not to sell that much. So what I like to do is have about 50% base pay. Let's call it 40 to 50% base pay of, of their total compensation, maybe 10 to 15% perks and benefits, and then 40 to 50% of uh, compensation based on performance. So here's here's an example of what that would look like in a company. You get forty dollars to $50,000 of just base pay, right? That's just a salary. You get maybe eight dollars to $10,000 worth of benefits, company car, technology, health insurance, retirement, PTO, that sort of thing like that. Um, and then what you would want is about maybe 
mm, at full speed, maybe twenty to fifty thousand dollars of uh, bonus or commission or whatever you want to call it. Uh, how we structure that is, I like to have that. I like to have about half people's money come from salary, half people's money come from their actual performance. It incentivizes them to get out there and get after it. Um, it also incentivizes the high performers. How we do that is we take every job. Um, we have our job costing, like you guys saw, and which I actually have up on the screen right here. Every job that hits 45% gross profit or better gets into the bonusable bucket. Every job that gets below 45% is non-bonusable. In the bonusable bucket, we just add up all the jobs that hit 45% GP. We add up the revenue for them and, and multiply them by give or take 2%. Uh, this is negotiated uh, based on the person that comes in the company and their years of service. We have a pay scale for that. But basically, a person in my company would get forty dollars to $50,000 base pay, $10,000 of perks benefit company vehicle, and then maybe thirty dollars to $50,000 of that bonus based on that revenue, 2% of all the good gross profit jobs that happen. And what that incentivized too is the project manager. They have a similar compensation plan. They're, they're incentivized to produce jobs profitably. Our painters are incentivized to get hit that gross profit. And our salespeople are incentivized to sell to get that gross profit. All three of the legs of that stool, the, the painters, the technicians, the project management, and the estimating like that, they're all incentivized equally so that they can all hold each other accountable. It's a pretty good system. Shane Garrett, good morning, my friend. Uh, what sort of labor commitment do you invest in back and admin and support to track all this data? Do you have your accounting function integrated into this process to tie back? No, we have a bookkeeper to do bookkeeping. Uh, we have a tax accountant to do tax accounting. Um, our project managers enter in the job costing information because it's, it's top of mind for them. It probably takes half an hour, 45 minutes a week, uh, give or take, depending on that. Um, it's also a way of us tracking those updates, give or take. Uh, but other than that, um, yeah, I, we do have an admin, uh, but they mainly do uh, stuff outside of job costing, give or take. John Penu, this is a true investment into the industry. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate this. I wish there was a, I wish there was some information like this when I was starting. So this is just me saying this would have helped me and I hope it helps somebody else. And uh, I will say this again, share this folks, just hit share, hit share, share it on all your social media, put it in your story, share it out there. Let's get it out. It's literally the kindest thing you can do for me here. So Chris Kent, I'm super excited to have an aggregated list like this to analyze specific types of goals. Really regret wasting so many years. Yeah, same, same. I've been there. Uh, John Busick, uh, two to three, more than three, my production rate typically drops 10 to 15%. And, uh, that's not bad. Uh, three plus our, our will drop 50%, give or take. That's just how it goes. Chris Kent, uh, I've seen a huge drop with the, uh, introduction of number three, no matter how hard we push. That's it. That's just how humans are. It's a weird, weird thing. Um, uh, mountain laurel painting. It's my business. Uh, if my business only cabinets and it's just me, I'll hire a helper soon. How should that affect my pricing? Um, to painting everything. Um, what I would do, that should be more based on, are you producing jobs profitably now? You won't know without job costing and how far are you booked out? Um, as long as you can produce everything you sell profitably and you're booked out long enough so you don't have gaps in the schedule, I would keep increasing my price until you start getting gaps in the schedule, give or take. But I would not tie that to uh, an employee. Honestly, <clears throat> If I were to just fire all my employees and go back to painting myself, I'd, I'd probably raise my rates somewhere between 10 and 70%, give or take, because I wouldn't need that much work, if I'm being honest. So, um, 
Color concept. What happens when the crew finishes an hour too early? I typically pay them for a full day just to keep the crew happy. I feel like it's a penalty to not pay them. Uh, so here's the deal. Um, almost nobody gets paid for not working, right? So you have to have a list of things that they can do. In our shop, they come back here, they clean their vans, they clean their brushes, they do other projects. We kick them over to another project, things like that. Uh, you want a culture in your company of producing something to earn money with everybody, with myself, my leadership team, the painters. If you create a culture where they know if they get done early, they're going to they're gonna get paid for that extra time, they can structure a schedule sometimes where they would create those gaps. That's just, I mean, they're not bad people for doing that. It's just you want to create a culture of, I'm going to offer you 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year, and it's all going to be productive work, give or take. And we need to do a better job of selling so we can kick them over to a smaller job or send them to the next job for the next day and get started. So. All right. Always grateful for the knowledge you share. Russell, thank you so much. Travis Dalen, no problem, man. My friend from Alaska. Chris, this is one of my on my mind as well. I almost felt the milking the clock in this scenario isn't even. So guys, you got to understand that sort of thing is created by us. It's the culture of the company. It's how we schedule. We need to sell more jobs. We need to fill a schedule and we need to be better scheduling those jobs so that there are no gaps in the schedule. Uh, da, 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 da. Does your team do multiple passes on an estimate? Example, production rates versus gut versus... No, um, we have a core of what we do, especially in the winter when we're not even doing exteriors. Walls, ceiling, cabinet, trim, maybe some furniture and other stuff. That data set is the most highly refined data set we have. Uh, that price Bible, which I showed you guys before, like literally it's like, this is what we charge for a big bedroom, small bedroom, big kitchen, small kitchen. Uh, living room, three different types of entryways, stairwells, foyers, things like that. It is such a precise data set, give or take. But no, typically we don't have to do that because that is market pricing for me. Uh, my price Bible, uh, at the end of that price Bible, if my two estimators go out and use those prices, we can produce all that work ultra profitably and we'll have a full schedule based on the knowledge I have of marketing. Oh, I forgot one last thing. Uh, you, uh, Kevin Wooten, good morning. Brian Struble, you brought up a good thing. Uh, what is the benchmark? I forgot to answer this for an estimator. Minimum is a million bucks of profitable work a year. Minimum. I would say that's a bare minimum. Typically what I found, uh, somebody in their first year could sell 1.5. They'll probably go 2.5 in their second year. And uh, I believe that we can push our estimators to somewhere between 2.5 to 3 when they're fully kicking and our marketing kicks in uh, somewhere between 12 and 18 estimates a week for them. So. Uh, have you ever estimated a job that you ended up losing money? <laughs> I made a business of this for a decade, my friend. And, and the, the worst part about this was, is I didn't know I was losing money because I didn't job cost. So yes, all the time, all the time. So uh, I just did the recount from last year. Uh, I believe it was 80, 74% of every one of our jobs hit that gross profit number and 26% did not. Now, it doesn't mean they were complete failures. They may have been a tenth of a percent off, but we do draw a line in the sand. And we're probably 75, 25 good jobs versus jobs that don't hit our benchmark. Now, losing money on a job is another thing. That's when you go zero gross profit and even negative gross profit. That's a whole nother thing. That may only be one to three percent of all jobs. And it's usually our fault because of those every year. So there's a big difference between not hitting gross profit and losing money. <laughs> Travis Dalen, is that 75 hour include your overhead? Yes, 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 yes. Everybody always asks that. Yes, does it include this? Does it include this? When your painters go out, I would argue they need to produce $75 an hour in order to cover everything in the company. Variable cost, fixed cost, overhead, owners pay, profit, everything. Everything, everything, everything. Cestic painting. 
Could you go back to the production rates and how you calculate that after job costing? Yes, you measure the job and you determine how much revenue you created for that particular measurement. So on an average, um, on an average bedroom, let's take a 15 by 15 foot bedroom, give or take, you have four walls, 15 feet long, eight feet high. So that gives you 120 square feet per wall. That's 480 square feet uh, per bedroom. And now you're going to have 960 square feet because you got to put two coats. So if you charge $400 for that bedroom and you produced it in four hours, if you charge $400, you produced it in four hours, and that's a 960 square feet, you basically use those three numbers to figure out in four hours, I can produce 960 square feet of walls and, and you divide by the revenue and that'll tell you how much you produce per each square foot, give or take. Simple math problem, give or take. You can email me and we can help uh, We can help with that as well too. Carlos uh, from Texas, what recommended pricing strategy for subbing out all the painting? Uh, strategy is market rate. Charge as much as you can while providing value to the clients and then give a percentage to your subs. What that percentage is, is based on whether what you include in there, project management, oversight, materials, give or take. I've seen people go between 40 and 70% on subcontracting jobs as what they give to the subcontractor. Amber Yelsey, great info. Thanks for being so transparent. Olive Holdings, are we talking sales and estimating? Oh yeah, this is Micah's sort of deal. He is a VP of sales. I'm probably gonna uh, hack up his uh, title, but yeah, Micah is a person who had helped me out with a lot of the stuff years ago. So uh, absolutely love that. Devin Nolan, uh, let's see, John Busick, great question. We do production rate, unit cost per item, sniff test, square foot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jason Webb, fabulous show. Thanks much. Micah, some other ideas for comp plans. I build in percentage of margin and sales and marketing should cost if sales rep can sell, uh, with taking on less paid mark. Yeah. So Micah, I have uh, got, you guys share your compensation plans through the PBN, the paint by numbers events and stuff. It is insanely sophisticated. It is the high watermark in there. Um, it is better, right? But it takes a ton of consistent data management, which uh, our industry doesn't normally do, but it is the high watermark. I would tell people if you want to, if you want a different version of a comp plan than the one I did, I have a very simple, transparent, uh, comp plan for my people. That's actually incentivizes, uh, uh profitability. Micah takes it one step further where if you want to create your own leads, you can actually make higher money. If you do that too, it's, it's a great process. It's a great process. Do, 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 do. Travis Dalen. Do, 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 do. Here we go. Kalen. Uh, profit should be gross or net with the 15%. All right. Here's the deal, folks. Everybody's going to use these wrong. Most of our industry uses these wrong. Here is the deal. Revenue minus labor minus paint gives you gross profit. Those are variable expenses. Gross profit minus overhead and owner's pay is net profit. Those are fixed expenses. Variable expenses, you only occur if you have a job, paint and labor. Fixed expenses are overhead, your vans, your shop, the owner's pay, uh, overhead positions in your company. Whether you have work or not, you have to pay for those. Variable expenses, fixed expenses. At the end of that, after the owner is paid, you get true net profit. True net profit is all the money left over after you pay for paint, materials, overhead, and the owner gets a salary for what they do. That is true net profit. Tanner Mullen, my good friend. Good to see you. Thank you so much. Love doing this. I actually saw Tanner Mullen in a jacket the other day. So we know it must have been below 68 degrees in Florida. So love you, Tanner. Uh, Jenny Morton, any hints on finding painters? Uh, yes. Professionalize your company first. You'll have something to offer them. Uh, if you don't have 
job costing, employee manual, pay scale, review process, standard operating procedures. I would urge you to not hire anybody before you do that. A couple of shows back, uh, we have a resource for you on there as well too. So, all right. Uh, Jose Martinez, uh, do you pay for lunch break or should that break be paid? Uh, so you don't have to, you can, you can, uh, you, your painters, uh, at least in my state, uh, they get a half an hour. You don't need to pay for it. I do. Uh, it's a, it's an incentive for them. Do you guys, um, spray every project interior and exterior? No, all our walls are brush and roll. Uh, most of our ceilings are sprayed. Our cabinets and trim are definitely sprayed. Exteriors are 80% sprayed, 20% brush and roll. Athlete Pruitt, do you offer free estimates or do you guys charge per estimate? We offer free estimates. We offer free estimates locally, but I'm curious if it should charge per estimate. Yeah, here's the problem. Um, no other contractor does it, so you may think it's a good idea, but if everybody else offers free estimates, it's uh, it's not the way to go. It is, it is like tipping. There's no economic rationality for tipping servers, right? There's no economic rationality for free estimates, but yet it's the industry standard and it's irrational and we still do it. Do, 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 do. Lewis, $75 per painter or for team, per painter per hour, per painter per hour. Do you ever have days where you don't have work for employees after doing shop work? Yeah, absolutely. Every company does that. Uh, we have a contingency list of other projects we can send them on, work that needs to be done in the shop, and we have a list of charity work that we can also send them on to. Uh, my compensation plan is based on my painters mandatorily working 40 hours a week. So in turn, I have to provide them with 40 hours a week. We do insane amount of marketing, insane amount of estimates to fill the schedule with profitable work. Uh, so if I email, do I have to pay for the templates? All right, folks, I am not a consultant. I have nothing to sell you. This is a free program, free resources. There is nothing here, money exchange. I will ask for a review on two things. If, if you like my templates or you like this show or whatever else, you just leave me a review, folks. That's it. All I ask is that. And right now, share the show. Just share it. Share it out in your story. Share it out in your feed. Do whatever you can. Um, Kaylin, I've been using your job costing sheet for a couple of years. Uh, it's a first thing that helped professionalizing. Absolutely. So, all right, folks, that is it for me today. I got a daughter doing a varsity dance this morning. I got to grab my other kids and we're going to go over and watch her. Uh, thank you guys so much for this. My email is up here. Um, absolutely. Uh, email me and I will help you out with these things. I want to thank you guys for watching this morning. Share, 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 share. It's a huge thing. Do me a favor, folks. Look up the PCA as well. I'm here today and all the people you're reading here, like the John Busick's and things like that and the Brian Strubles, they're all PCA members and they readily share this information with me. People like John Busick put their armor on me early in the industry and taught me everything I need to know. And I'm here again sharing. And as I get new data, I share it back with John. John shares it with me. That's the ethos and that's the culture of the PCA. Please, 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 please share this show. Look at the PCA, come to the expo, get in that business accelerator. So, all right, folks, it's a great show. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org.